The West Memphis Three, as told by Catherine Vasso. Bob Ruff once described West Memphis as the type of place where kids would go off and ride their bikes around the neighborhood after school. Nobody worried about kids getting kidnapped or even killed. It used to be the place where kids were safe to leave for a couple of hours with friends and return when the streetlights came on. But that all changed on May 5th, 1993. The true murder story of the West Memphis Three brought terror and fright to many who lived in the area, and it would never be looked at as a safe haven ever again. Eight-year-olds Stevie Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers were best friends and Cub Scout members who were second graders at Weaver Elementary School. On the afternoon of May 5th, 1993, the three friends were enjoying a warm afternoon outdoors when Stevie asked his mother if he and his friends could go on a bike ride. Pamela Hicks, Stevie's mother, agreed, but little did she know that would be the last time she ever saw her child. John Mark Byers, Christopher's stepfather, reported the boys missing to the West Memphis Police Department at approximately 8 p.m. The following day, authorities launched an extensive search for the boys, where they were last seen playing in a wooded area off Interstate 40 known as Robin Hood Hills. According to the local newspaper, the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, their bodies were discovered that afternoon in a drainage ditch. They were stripped naked and hogtied with their shoelaces. Christopher's cause of death was from multiple injuries, and both Michael and Stevie died from multiple injuries with drowning. Christopher had a fractured skull, and his private parts had been mutilated, which authorities believed was done by his killer. But it could also have been the work of wild animals, according to the New York Times. This tragedy was traumatic for the families of the three little boys. They wanted to know who the horrific killer was. Investigators believed that the mutilation of the boys was part of a satanic ritual. This led them to three teenage boys, Damien Acoles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miss Kelly. The boys were known for wearing all black, listening to heavy metal music, and studying Wicca. Wicca was a form of paganism a tradition founded in England in the mid-20th century and claiming its origins in pre-Christian religions. Acoles was theorized to have been the leader of the local satanic cult that killed the boys in a disturbing ceremony. Baldwin and Acoles had been previously arrested for vandalism and shoplifting, and Miss Kelly had a reputation for his temper and participating in fistfights with other teenagers at school. Miss Kelly and the Coles had dropped out of high school. However, Baldwin was a smart student with high grades, and he was especially good at drawing and sketching. A Coles's family was poor and received common visits from social workers, and he rarely attended school. He spent several months in a mental institution in Arkansas and after received a full disability status from Social Security Administration. During Acoles' trial, Dr. George W. Woods testified that Acoles suffered from a serious mental illness characterized by delusions, auditory and visual hallucinations, disordered thought processes, substantial lack of insight, and chronic mood swings.
Two days after the murder, Nichols was taken to take a polygraph examination where his results indicated deception. With all this evidence that Nichols was a, a mental teenage boy that was capable of killing someone, there was actually no hard evidence that he or his friends did it. On June 3rd, the police interrogated Jesse Miss Kelly. He was questioned along his parents. He was questioned alone. His parents were not present during the interrogation. Miss Kelly's father permitted Miss Kelly to go with the police, but did not explicitly give permission for his son to be questioned or interrogated. Miss Kelly was questioned for roughly 12 hours. Only two segments, totaling 46 minutes, were recorded. In those 12 hours of interrogation, Ms. Kelly pleaded guilty, but later quickly renounced his confession, citing intimidation, coercion, fatigue, and threats from the police. Ms. Kelly specifically said he was scared of the police during his confession. During Ms. Kelly's trial, Richard Offshe, a professor of sociology at UC Berkeley, and an expert on false confessions and police coercion testified that the brief recording of Ms. Kelly's interrogation was a classic example of police coercion. Critics have also stated that Ms. Kelly's various confessions were in many ways inconsistent with each other and didn't match up to the crime scene, including, for example, an admission that Ms. Kelly watched Damien rape one of the boys, however, there was no forensic evidence indicating that the murdered boys had been raped. On February 5th, 1994, Miss Kelly was convicted by a jury on one count of first-degree murder and two counts of second-degree murder. The court sentenced him to life plus 40 years in prison. His convic conviction was appealed, but the Arkansas Supreme Court asserted the conviction. Three weeks later, Coles and Baldwin went on trial. The prosecution accused the three young men of committing a satanic murder. The prosecution called Dale W. Griff Griffiths, a graduate from the undercredited Columbia Pacific University, as an expert in the occult to testify the murders were a satanic ritual. On March 19, 1994, Coles and Baldwin were found guilty on three counts of murder. The court sentenced Coles to death and Baldwin to life in prison. There was a lot of criticism that went along with the trial. Many say that the police handled the crime scene poorly by moving the bodies and not calling the coroner until two hours after the bodies were found. Officials failed to drain the creek promptly, which resulted in lost evidence. There were also small amounts of blood found at the crime scene that were never tested. The police had even failed to disclose information about the crime, which led to a lot of misleading speculation. I have described to you the crime scene in the aftermath of the West Memphis Three. 
This story is a tragic and uh, this story is tragic and affected many people. From what I have told you, you may think that Nicole's, Miss Kelly, and Baldwin were guilty, but in 2007, new evidence of DNA from the crime from the crime scene was tested, and none of it matched the three teens. But what was found was the hair of Stevie's stepfather, Terry Hobbs, that was tied up in the shoelaces and hogtied the boys together. There was also a hair found in the crime scene that matched Terry's friend, David Jacoby. Another thing that was suspiciously found was little Stevie's knife found in Terry's nightstand drawer. Pamela and her sister said that Stevie always carried his pocket knife around with him, and she assumed that the murderer had taken the knife after killing him. While Coles, Miss Kelly, and Baldwin were in prison, celebrities and well-known people were doing their part to try and release the teen boys. They believed that they were innocent and shouldn't be paying the price for other people's crimes. Pearl Jam frontman Eddie Vedder, Dixie Chick singer Natalie Maines, film director Peter Jackson from the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and actor Johnny Depp were all advocates for the three boys. They brought awareness to the situation and educated many people about the case. Meanwhile, on November 10, 2010, the Arkansas Supreme Court appointed a lower judge to consider newly analyzed DNA that may acquit the three boys. After weeks of consulting, the three boys agreed to a plea deal on August 19, 2011. The three entered an Alfred plea deal. An Alfred plea deal is when you register a formal claim, neither of guilt nor innocence, toward charges brought against a defendant in criminal court. Judge David Laser vacated the previous convictions and ordered a new trial. They were all released from prison, and Nicole said in part of the plea deal, I have now spent half of my life on death row. It is, it is a torturous environment that no human being should ever have to endure, and it needed to end. I am innocent, and as, as are Jason and Jesse, but I made this decision because I did not want to spend another day of my life behind those bars.
I have now told you the true story of the West Memphis Three. I described the scene, the victims, the potential murderers, and everything that concluded after the crime. The hard evidence being the hard evidence behind this crime doesn't lead to Coles and his friend, but rather Stevie's stepfather and his friend. Personally, I believe they were innocent and shouldn't have spent 18 years of their lives behind bars. But many people can disagree and debate about this topics. Topic. I believe that with no evidence of them actually committing the crime, but rather a stereotypical bias, these boys should have not been found should have not been convicted. People listen to the things that people listen to the things they wanted to hear and not the facts. They chose to ruin the lives of innocent people because they were too caught up in their emotions and not their logical thinking. Damian Nichols, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Muskelly spent half of their lives behind bars, paying the price for someone else's gruesome crime. Justice was served, but it was served to the wrong people. And this isn't the first time incidents like this have happened. At least, at least these three boys got out when they could. Unfortunately, many other innocent people don't. Next, I have a clip from the True Crime Buzz website. And it's David Jacoby talks about the night the boys went missing. sure they would find them. I thought he'd get one of his buddy's house, you know, with maybe wet, muddy clothes or something. He was too scared to go home. But, and then you get all this other crap that's come along with it over the years. I mean, you're never going to, I'll never forget him, you know. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it's always why, you know, you should have put more effort to find them. And I could have done more. I, was, I just assumed, I guess he was going to be found in one of his buddies' house, you know. You know, I wish I knew what happened, but then again, oh, I don't even know what happened. It's just, it's... Uh, oh. Why would you not want to go with that? I mean, I mean, I want to know. You know, you understand yeah. what I'm saying? But it, it just... Wow, well, it's just... You really want to know? I mean, well, so then, because I mean, then you got to, then you're going to see that in your, in your head every time, and it, you know. I mean, well, we know what the end result was, but I, it's more why, why, you know, who and why. <laughs> eight-year-old kids, what the hell did they do? I mean, even if they'd seen something, they shouldn't have seen. What's an eight-year-old going to see that they? I mean. Surely, I mean, you know, they know ultimately if something was bad or whatever, but what could have been so bad that they, they had to, you know, kill him? I see my, my life with that, okay, you know. I, I just can't think of what this kid could have saw or done that was worth it. You 
This next clip is Pam Hicks describing the last time she saw her son. Where I lived there wasn't very far from where the school was. And uh, I checked him out of school early. By the time we got home, uh, Michael Moore up on his little bicycle. He's in full Cub Scout uniform and everything. And uh, he said, can Stevie go ride with me on a bike? And I said, son, you got to do your homework. He said, mama already did. And it was hanging on the refrigerator. And he, he made a hundred. Uh, and they were riding off on their little bikes and stuff. I said, boy, you better be at home by 4.45. I'm getting ready and I gotta go to work. Uh, little Michael Moore holds up his arm. He said, we'll be back, I promise. I thought he had a watch on. So I, uh, soon as Terry got home, he said, where's Frog legs at? And I said, uh, he went riding bikes with uh, Michael. By 4.45, I leave to go to work. That's the last I saw my son. Life went on for everybody else. What time did Terry come? What, what, what happened? He came to pick me up about 9 o'clock, 9, 10. He walked in. Uh, he claimed we had a phone at home. No, we did. He walked in and gets on the telephone. Did you have a phone, phone in your house? No. No phone? None whatsoever. Okay, so go on. He came to my work, picked me up. Uh, I don't know who the hell he was calling. When he called somebody, I don't know. He didn't call the police? Uh, he said he did. He might have. I think he did. And the police showed up. That's right. At your work? Yeah. What happened? I just told the cop find his daddy. That was an instinct thing uh, to me. It's find his natural daddy. And uh, I went to a payphone. And I called Steve's mother in Earl, Arkansas. And I t said, Geneva, do you know where Steve's at? I said, Stevie's missing. Steve come from Osceola, Arkansas to West Memphis to the police station while Terry was off doing whatever, I don't even know, don't care, you know, but seriously. Um, and my dad and Steve search like hell. This last clip is West Memphis since the murders. West Memphis has been just shattered and destroyed. It's been 
burned to the ground, so to speak, because of this case. You know, it was the more people I speak to about West Memphis back in the late 80s and the early 90s, it was a great place to live. There was a, these boys, Stevie, Michael, and Christopher, lived in a neighborhood where it was okay and no one worried about saying, go out on your bikes, have fun, be back when the streetlights come in. That was what West Memphis was prior to these murders. And then when Stevie, Michael, and Christopher were killed and their bodies were found in that little patch of woods behind their neighborhood in West Memphis, it just, it was like a bomb went off on the town. And there's just ripples of just sadness and devastation. And because there's, there were, there's three victims, it just, those ripples reach further and wider than, than they would in any other case even. And when you go back to West Memphis now, the city's just a shell of what it was back then. I don't know how much of kind of the devastation of West Memphis is due to the tragedy of these murders that occurred. I, I don't know enough about the city to know, but what I do know is there's been a dynamic shift. When I drive into West Memphis, it just it just feels there's there's a heaviness about the city. It's not you're, it's not a place that you're excited to be. You know, the very first time I went, anytime we take a new case and I, I go into an area for the first time, there's always that excitement. We're going to meet new people and learn new things. And there's just, there's just like a shadow over the city. All right. That concludes my podcast. Thank you for listening.